You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 21st of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... Your activists and your sort of student protests and so on are always going to be interested in protesting, but it's once things start to affect your everyday person, your accountant and your taxi driver and your this and this and this, that they as well get involved. And it becomes more than just a protest, but it becomes the beginning of a revolution. Iran is in trouble. Domestic protests, Israeli bombings of its positions in Syria and leaked cables revealing extensive, if unsurprising, meddling in Iraq. So what now? My guest Yasmin Abdel. Majid and Robert Fox will discuss that and the day's other news, including Google promising to regulate political advertising. Twitter is bringing a similar pledge into force tomorrow. Is big tech capitulating to a shift in public and legislative perception? And with courtroom sketches from Watergate up for sale, what artefact will stand as the impeachment merch of tomorrow? Plus, Japan is known for its quirk, but it's got lessons to teach the world too, from diplomacy to design and art to architecture. We reflect on how the land of the rising sun has provided inspiration for our latest issue of Monocle. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Robert Fox, Defence Editor of the Evening Standard, and Yasmin Abdul-Majid, the writer and broadcaster. And let's start with Iran, which isn't all that easy a thing to do right now. After protests began in cities across the country last Friday, Iran's authorities switched off the internet, which is not traditionally an indication that those in charge are completely confident they've got everything under control. For what it may be worth, President Hassan Rouhani has declared victory against enemy plots, subversive elements, the usual suspects, etc., and amen. Uh, and elsewhere in a rickety week for the Ayatollahs, they are down several rocket launchers following Israeli airstrikes inside Syria and embarrassed by the leak of intelligence documents. Uh, Yasmin, let's start with these protests. There are some reports that the internet is being switched back on, but do these protests strike you as having anything in common with the uprisings we've seen in Arab Africa recently? I obviously have been involved or from afar um, with the Sudanese revolution this year and keeping a close eye on things like Lebanon and so on. And as we know, any any place where the internet is switched off is a place where there is a concern for what's happening, especially because it's difficult then to get any information uh, about what's going on on the ground. Um so from from the sort of broad perspective, yes, it's concerning. It is more difficult, I think, to tell precisely how uh, same they are, whether it's like mm. Sudani or Lebanon East, simply because the the context in Iran is so different. Um, the there was that thing though of them apparently being sparked by what might seem, in the grand order of things, something relatively trivial, which was a spike in petrol prices, prices. and yep. similar things have tipped off protests in well, Lebanon, Chile, other places recently. Certainly, I think the reason why people are going out on the streets, a small spark is something to unite people around, right? It's something where you can say, okay, this specific thing has happened and we've got all these woes and we've got all these things we're really frustrated about, but this is one specific thing we can get people out around. And then it often becomes from that small thing about something much bigger um, because the the people that are out on the street become... Well, the other thing I should say is that 
yes, your activists and your sort of student protests and, and so on are always going to be interested in protesting, but it's once things start to affect your everyday person, your accountant and your taxi driver and your this and this and this, that they as well get involved. And it becomes more than just a protest. It becomes the beginning of a revolution. Now, Robert, is it potentially a bit of a stretch to perceive some relationship between the protests in Iran for what little we know of them, and what does seem like the bizarre decision of the Quds Force, which is the Revolutionary Guards Foreign Legion in Syria, to take a pop at Israel? Because they know what's going to happen if they do that. They're not stupid. They know that if they launch missiles at Israel, they're going to lose all those missile launches by way of retaliation and more besides. Well, they're... they're, they're testing the opposition all, all the time with that because what they want to, want, to, want to know with those new, relatively new precision weapons is whether they really work amongst other things. But I think... Okay, well, lesson learned. But I think that you are right because the thread that... One of the common threads to this story that as so far identified, the three items that you, you, you mentioned, is the Al-Quds force. A lot of the protest in Iraq among the civil Shia population in Baghdad and Kabbalah is against the Iranian influence. And let's draw a line through to what is going on in Iran. It's funny, the one revolution you didn't mention, which I think is very much... There's a lot to keep up with at the moment. ...is the Green Revolution of 2009. Mm. And the way, it wasn't necessarily the Hoods Force, because as you say, they don't operate so much internally, although they are part of the great military combinat mm. in the old Soviet sense of, 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 of the Iranian forces of the Revolutionary Guard. I mean, they're a business, they're almost a state within within a state. But uh, 2009, it was put down by a combination of the secret police there, the Muhabarat and, and, and the Basij. And they use tactics, and this is what makes it re- relevant to today. That it was absolutely vicious. They used snipers to shoot down, to target leaders, and to shoot them with lethal rounds, no warning. That's eventually because they were caught on the hop by actually the insurgents, the Green Revolutionaries' use of social, of, 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 of internet. You are absolutely right there. And by the way, they say they're doing the same thing in Iraq. Uh, I was talking to Professor Toby Dodge, who is a frequent visitor, and he said there is now outstanding evidence that uh, a lot of the victims who have been shot with lethal rounds have been shot by snipers, absolutely trained Iranian doctrine, and with long, not dum-dum short-nose rounds, but long sniper uh, lethal rounds. And there is no doubt about it that the protest in Iraq is against the poor of Iraq, of Iran, and particularly Al Quds, because Soleimani, the commander, goes in several times. He's been there well, very, indeed, very recently, uh, running Al Mahdi and his predecessor Al Maliki. They ran the Shiite-dominated regime. Yasmin, that does, I guess, link the third thread of this together, or links, you know, links the three threads together, which is the ongoing protests in Iraq, which, as Robert correctly points out, have been substantially directed at Iranian influence. There has been at least one Iranian consulate, I think, in Kabul, mm. burnt down by. Um, protesters. Uh, What is revealed in these leaked intelligence documents, which I don't think is going to surprise many people in Iraq, but it's not going to calm anybody down because it does reveal in considerable detail the degree to which Iraq has become a a more or less complete complete client state of Iran. Yeah, so I think the information that's come out has given people, well, has essentially confirmed and reinforced what people have already believed, but Mm. that that essentially fans the flames and that means that people feel much more legitimate um, not only in their protest 
protests and their frustrations, but then in, in going and doing something about it. And the question then becomes, you know, w- what do people want to do next? And I think that's that's going to be quite interesting, apart from sort of saying we don't want interference, which is the general um, sentiment. But uh, how then, how, how do you sort of unpick and unravel um, something that has been... Uh, done for quite a while. It's not just, you know, a few people getting involved here and there. It's it's quite entrenched involvement. And so how do you unpick something that itself is quite fragile still? Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Robert Fox will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. In the United States, a former White House advisor has described Donald Trump's claims that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that meddled in the 2016 presidential election as a fictional narrative and criticised Republican lawmakers for perpetuating the claims. Fiona Hill, who was a senior advisor on Russia to the White House, made her remarks during Thursday's public hearings in the impeachment inquiry against President Trump. Bolivia's interim president, Janine Añez, has asked Congress to approve fresh elections. The country has been beset by political violence since the resignation of Evo Morales, who stepped down earlier this month over accusations of electoral fraud. Añez has not revealed when the new elections will take place. And there are reports that a number of British Airways flights have been delayed by a technical issue. It's the latest setback for the British flag carrier, which has suffered three major computer failures since 2017. BA says that it's working hard to resolve the technical problem. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Robert Fox. Let's move on now to that further constriction on political advertising online. Following Twitter's decision to punt almost all political advertising off its platform, Google is to impose restrictions of its own. It will no longer permit political advertisers to target voters based on their known political affiliation. It also intends to ban doctored videos and images and police false claims more rigorously. Whether this will have any edifying effect on the discourse remains to be seen, but it will increase pressure on Facebook to take similar steps. Well, earlier, Monocle spoke to Rana Faruha, an associate editor at the Financial Times and author of a book highly critical of big tech called Don't Be Evil. She suggested that the behaviour of the giants might have set them down the path to regulation. Robert, is this, and not for the first time, the tech giants trying to forestall regulation? I don't know what it is in, in, in Cyberland, but it's the equivalent of herring a whole raft of stable doors being slammed <laughs> very loudly shut after all kind of equine creatures, <laughs> uh, from ponies up to thoroughbred, uh, running away. What, They've been what, what an got. evocative image that is. <laughs> but it makes, you are quite right, I don't know what to say more. Facebook looks so flat-footed. It looks just wrong-headed, and it looks greedy, self-indulgent, and selfish. And that's why our colleagues' comparison with the, you know, the tycoons, the railroad robber barons, uh, uh, the big oil men, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers of the 19th century, it is absolutely apposite. I mean, the defence that Zuckerberg and his now um, benighted um, deputy, Sir Nick Clegg, saying, <laughs> oh, we're just publishers or platforms, so we can't censor mm. or, 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 or check the content. Any thoroughgoing publisher in this country, I think, and the US, 
wouldn't accept that because they are responsible for what goes out, uh, out on it and for telling the truth. Um, Yasmin, it's, it's entirely possible uh, that the motivations of the tech giants here might not be a, a pure-hearted wish to... to um, <laughs> Pot- up, potentially. Up, potentially. Mm. Uphold, How could you possibly say uphold that? democracy? <laughs> Mot- so cynical, Andrew. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but, but, but motivations aside, is this basically a good thing that these steps are being taken? I was thinking about this as... as as you were talking, and I thought, you know, after all, what we want is for cleaner discourse. What we want is for the ability to to have a hygienic internet, right? That is ultimately what we're what we're kind of looking for. So, yes, motivations aside, this is a step in the right direction. However, I think there is there is obviously fine print that needs to be noticed that it's not any targeted advertising isn't being um, restricted. It's a very specific type of targeted advertising. So it's, yes, about your political affiliation. It's not where you live or um, or other aspects of your own identity. And the reality is, is that that is Google's um, business model. Google's business model is that it can get the ads in front of the people mm. who will buy. So they're only going to tweak little bits here and there. And the question, I mean, yes, I think they are trying to regulate themselves before uh, before anyone else gets too involved, because ultimately they are noticing that the the winds have shifted and the winds have shifted pretty quickly in the opposite direction. However, ultimately, their business models are not suitable to a healthy democratic society. Ultimately, the way that they're structured means that the the lifeblood of our democracy, which is information flows, are being poisoned by the way that they've set things up. And so I think it, at this stage, it's tweaking and they can tweak as much as they want. But but we're really going to have to think of what kind of business models will be able to contribute to a better society. I mean, Facebook recently took um, Instagram likes off, uh, for example. So ra- rather than seeing you've got like 3000 likes, it'll be like, you and ten, uh, you and thousands of others have liked this photo, and people are like, is this a good thing? And you're like, well, is it a is a bandaid on an amputated um, limb a good thing? I mean, ulti- I mean, yeah, it's better than no bandaid, but you know, what what is the overall thing that we're looking at here? I mean, Robert, the comparison with the 19th century railway barons of the United States is is apposite in some respects because it is that thing of private corporations having enormous unprecedented power um, over the public good. But it doesn't hold up in another respect, which is that regulating railways is actually a pretty straightforward thing to do relatively. Whereas this, if you talk about regulation of what can and cannot be broadcast on the internet, we are then, are we not going to get into an awful lot of hysterical partisan shrieking about who gets to decide what is legitimate content and who isn't, and possibly even profound reflections on the nature of truth itself? All of which is legitimate. I agree with all the above, because uh, as Yasmin said, actually, the selling plate of Google isn't, we believe in critical democratic debate. Well, indeed You're not. not going to get very far. And I think going on with slamming um, uh, uh, stable doors. I think it was a very important factor is that although they're enormous now, um, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons who are in the information world, the Netflixes and so on, they are all of them worried about who's going to take over next. And that's why they're trying to keep ahead of the game. And they're looking for the next trick. I agree with you. Uh, Top-down regulation ain't going to work. It just ha- it hasn't worked. But I think that one of the things that you have to encourage, and it sounds very uh, much as if I'm back in the era of scouting for boys by Mr. Baden-Powell of the Boy Scout <laughs> movement, I know, you've got to encourage a critical audience. 
digital literacy, understanding digital media must be taught in schools from the beginning all the way up, because we don't even know what is really going on in this Brexit election in, in, in the UK, because it's that big media doesn't matter, but it's localised, targeted social media in the marginals, in the where there's a narrow margin. I'll bet there's not. Well, there's no evidence. There's a hell of a lot going on. And it is very, very difficult to work with a government who has exponents who believe in post-truth. In other words, when it is convenient for a higher, their higher aim to tell lies. And to build on that, I think, yes, it's incredibly important for, for young people, but also for the rest of us, right? For you know, for for people, for millennials, for Gen X, for baby boomers, because ultimately all of these folks are voting. But also we're now in a situation, and the analogy that I like to use is there was, back in the day, there was one person in the park, you know, talking to everyone in the town square, whatever. And now you've got a single, per- your best friend whispering in your ear, a very targeted message that they know will work for you. And you've got no idea what is being whispered in everybody else's ear, right? And so that's a very difficult and a very different sort of situation because you actually can't, we have no idea actually what somebody in a marginal seat is seeing on their newsfeed. It is almost impossible to find out what other people are seeing on their social media feeds. And so it's not only about young people understanding critical digital literacy and critical thinking skills, it's us because we all like to think that we are immune, but we're not. Yes, ad- advertising, it's one of those things that only affects other people. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but you can teach people to ask the simple <laughs> question, what do you mean by right. when you get the whispering friend and what's your source? Yeah. <laughs> well, finally, uh, on today's news panel, uh, exciting news for aficionados of weird political kitsch. And I know I am one. Uh, the online gallery, Gallery 88, is exhibiting and selling the pastel sketches of Frida Reiter, commissioned by American Network ABC as their courtroom artist during the post-Watergate trials of various unsavoury associates of disgraced President Richard M. Nixon. The sketches depict real and imagined events, images such as the one of Nixon ranting at a bemused John Ehrlichman and H.R. Haldeman in the Oval Office have an undeniably haunting quality. Um, See, Robert, you would be able to remember this period and to have lived through a time when America was governed by such relatively upstanding public servants as Richard Nixon, H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman. You you must be getting quite nostalgic. But uh, the visuals were very, very strong in, in Watergate. But it was an all-singing, <laughs> all-dancing radio show. <laughs> Funny enough, when you asked me on to discuss this, I heard Senator Sam Irvin singing or growling Bridge Over Troubled Waters, which <laughs> went to the top of the charts in this during the, uh, the hearings. It was a story. It was epic. Uh, and I was just thinking the wonderful thing in all the president's men and most of the uh, uh, people around about and real journo geeks. We grew up on the front page and, 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 and things like that and then tried to live the drama ourselves. Some of us would be very lucky actually to live quite a bit of it. But the fact is that we had a figure like Deep Throat this figure, this undisclosed source who talked to um, Woodstein, Woodward and Bernstein throughout, and we all thought it must be a fake and a composite. And then uh, the family of one Mark Felt, deputy chief of the FBI, said, Dad wanted, he was, di- mm-hmm. he had Alzheimer's, said, 
it was he, and Woodstein <laughs> said it was. It's absolute magic. I think that that's going to be the great thing. It won't be the same script, and it won't be quite the same scenario, but it will be the same setting. I think the impeachment of Trump is going to be just as good. Uh, and it will hopefully provide, Yasmin, just as many exciting souvenirs. I mean, I, I will confess or elaborate upon my already admitted weakness for this stuff. I, I do own items up to and including uh, Colonel Gaddafi drinks coasters and uh, Saddam Hussein wall clock. I want to be and, shocked. Yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and so on and so forth. Do you own any any such things? Would you be tempted by any such things? I feel like if I if I sort of talk about the, the kind of things that I collect, I'll really sort of fall in your estimation. <laughs> take take I mean, the chance. Well, take I the mean, chance. The things I... This is going to sound quite bizarre, but the only things that I collect are Tintin related. Like I'm a I'm a big fan of you know the Snowy and the Captain Haddock and the billions of blue blistering barnacles. But <laughs> Gaddafi, um, I mean, he built a hotel in Sudan, and I've stayed there, so that that's that's probably it. <laughs> But Tintin is the world's greatest reporter, but never actually recorded filing a story. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think there's one in which there is a... I'm not big enough a nerd to remember which Tintin book off the top of my head, but there is one in which I think his byline does appear on a front page. Is it King Otakar's Scepter? Potentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think possibly. Robert, do you have any items of this ilk decorating your living quarters? I I, I didn't buy them, but I'm quite embarrassed. Go on. I scrounged them. I've got an Iraqi (laughs) soldier's uh, little shaving cup from the end of the uh, Kuwait operation. It was very sad. It was a dreadful scene because it was on the Mutla Ridge. But there was lots of stuff. And I I just just picked it up and I keep uh, paper clips in it. Um, I did come back from the Falklands, the late unpleasantness in the South Atlantic, with more of my quota of R.G. Bernard, I'm, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get the SIB, the, 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 the CID of the armed forces around at my door <laughs> this afternoon. Um, as, I, as I think I've said in this spot before, I, I did also briefly own an Iraqi passport uh, purchased from a disreputable dealer in Baghdad in 2003, uh, of which I was relieved by Jordanian customs guards uh, on my way out of the country, who, who by that point had completely lost patience with journalists. But a friend of mine who had the wit uh, to roll his enormous oil portrait of Saddam Hussein around his leg, um, got out with it. I'm and I, impressed. And I think has it framed above his fireplace in uh, San Diego. It might Diego. be very valuable. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, there, there was a lot of that. I, I, I confess I did have an Ayatollah watch. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was actually a Mickey Mouse watch which they superimposed. The um, these will all be available from Robert Fox's <laughs> Etsy store shortly. Uh, for the moment, uh, Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Robert Fox, thank you both very much for joining us. You're listening to Monocle 24. This is Monocle House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today with the latest issue of Monocle on newsstands now. Monocle's executive editor Josh Fennett explains how it was informed, inspired and shaped by Japan. Anyone who spent any time in Japan will have left with questions. Lots of questions. Why don't we have bullet trains in Europe and the US? How can Tokyo do hot dogs better than the Big Apple and red sauce pasta joints more satisfying than the Milanese? Oh, 
And what is that dancing salaryman doing wearing the head of a fish? Meet Kanpachiro, the mascot of Kanoya City, a peculiar place in Kagoshima Prefecture that wants to be known equally for bonito fish and business. Yes, Japan is known for its quirk, but it's got lessons to teach the world too, from diplomacy to design and art to architecture. It's a nation forging forward in everything from aviation to tackling the problem of ageing communities. What's more, it's set to up its visitor numbers after a successful Rugby World Cup this year and the Olympics approaching next. For these reasons and more besides, we've made Japan the centrepiece of the December-January issue of Monocle, which hits newsstands today. Our admiration for all things Nippon has always fed our journalist curiosity and, yes, if we're honest, our enthusiasm for sing-until-dawn karaoke sessions too. It's the reason we've had an office in Tokyo since 2007 and why we don't take the task of showcasing the nation's best businesses, designers, fashion folk or craftspeople too lightly. There are lots to choose from and we've met many over the years. Our team of journalists were dispatched from our leafy low-rise offices in Tomagaya, Tokyo to all corners of the island nation to report on best practice in urban regeneration, new media models and music, as well as profiling the nation's best modern national treasures. What they brought back, as well as plenty of material for our new book on Japan, which will be published in 2020, is a magazine that's bursting with ideas, inspiration and oddity. And yes, some of those answers you were hankering for too. That was Josh Fennett, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machalari and researched by Yolene Goffan. Our studio managers were Kenya Scarlett and Jack Dewars. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.